Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Alan, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, Chris. Thank you. You're in a rush to get out the country, I I believe. Yeah, I should have been flying out uh, four days after the lockdown started. So obviously everything's been on hold. So now uh, return trip and but obviously the this is probably the most tr- stressful tri- trip yet, to be honest, because there's just so many factors involved in it. Yeah, I was going to say, when I leave the country, I'm, I'm awful. I, I, I need two days to pack, and I'm not, I'm not talking about going on holiday here for people listening, although I'm pretty bad at that as well. I mean, going on any sort of expedition, I have to have everything kit-mustered, laid out, double-checked, batteries, MP3 player loaded up, have I got you know my phone numbers backed up all this sort of stuff right yeah but I can't imagine you're 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 going to a war zone that must be a whole another stress again it is because you, you've got to remember you because you, you're in a war zone you can't just go picking up the stuff and you just can't go picking it up willy-nilly and during the, the during the process of this, obviously it'd been my first documentary. You know, I'm suddenly having to, I'm suddenly in the middle of Syria, having to try, find uh, having to find batteries, having to find secret cameras, having to find GoPro extra GoPros stands and all the rest of this. So yeah, it is a bit um, yeah, <laughs> and so. Tell us, just just if you see me making notes, I'm I'm not. Uh, so if you see me looking down, I'm not being being. No, rude. no. I've, I've thought of an, something I really want to ask you, and I don't want to forget it. So, no, no, um, it's fine. It's fine. I, I know. I've been. I know exactly. <laughs> but um, did you come from a mili- military background then? Yes, um, I served in the Queen's Own Highlanders. Then I got out of the army, missed it. And I ended up rejoining um, Royal Irish Regiment. So I was basically uh, Royal Irish Regiment. A lot of the older guys would know it as the UDR. So I worked at Armagh for a lot of years as well. In, and then, in Armagh? Yeah. Huh? Yep. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Northern Ireland, I worked Belfast, Fermanagh, but with the Royal Irish I was Armagh Home Service. What sort of years was that then? Was that during the Troubles? Yeah, first first tour was what eighty five and for Manor actually. Whoa! So yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've got a, and then I had the break. I got out in uh, what was it? In the ninety one, just after the Gulf, and then I ended up rejoining. And funnily enough, the the route that I went for the rejoining, I ended up my. When I was doing my training at the Bridget, I did my training at Juniors, Bridget on, and my company commander during my training ended up being a com- company commander in the battalion as well. 
And then when I ended up rejoining the Royal Irish, he was um, the route that I went through for that. <laughs> so, yeah, Major Wimberley. <laughs> my, my gosh. So were you, um, were you when, when you were over the water, was that with you, the Scottish regiment or the or the Irish? Well, I had a couple of postings. I had uh, Fermanagh and West Belfast Turf Lodge when I was regulars. Um, and then when I was Royal Irish, it was obviously RMR. You just worked there all the time. So you'd basically, you'd live, I mean, you know, you, you, live, you didn't live in the same area you worked, but a lot of the guys actually did. So you do your shift, go home 24 hours or whatever. But if an incident happened, then obviously that 24 hours could turn into 48 hours or whatever, you know? So yeah, it was, um, <laughs> yeah. Did you see else. a lot of, um, a lot of incidents? Yeah, enough. Um, one in particular stands out with me. Um, I in LA went and shot him in a car park. Yeah. He was retired RUC and they shot him in front of his wife and walked up behind him. And the guy ended up getting, did less than two years under the Good Friday sellout. Yes. <laughs> Doesn't really come much more savage, does it, than some of the stuff that's gone on there. And yeah. And, uh, I can imagine that must be terribly upsetting for the families of victims to, to see what... Of course, it takes a toll on you as well. I mean, I, I was affected. Um, I went through some dark times, let's say. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I bet. Was that before you went to work in Syria? or? or... Yeah, um, it came to a crunch in sort of 2000, 2000 actually. But yeah, um, but, you know, I'm no different to many other squaddies, you know. We've all, you know, whether it be Gulf, Northern Ireland, uh, Af Afghanistan, you know, so many of us have went through it. And, I had, you know yourself, sometimes you have to get as low as you can go into that darkest, darkest place. And you've got to be able to come out of it. There's only one way to go after that, and that's up. And sadly, 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 just too many just aren't, especially just now, too many aren't making it. Yeah, there's, there's so many unknown quantities there for me that I'd love, I'd love to know what's going on in someone's head when they're, uh, you know, just about to take their own life. Yeah for the reason that maybe I, I could understand it better and I could help people better. You see, it's all well and, well, I say it's all well and good. It's probably not the right expression, but I mean, I come back from some serious trauma, but my trauma was from my younger years, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make it any less. I, I personally yeah. think, I think it's more, it, because when you're young, you can't make sense of trauma because you're too young. So you internalize it. You, you know, you just think this life's fucking hard, you know, and, and maybe there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, I, um, 
I don't know how it is to be in a combat zone. I mean, we had, you know, we come under contact a few times in, in Northern Ireland. And if I was honest, I, I really enjoyed it, but I was 19, you know, that's what it, it, I wouldn't even though the guy behind me got shot three times. I, it didn't affect me in any way whatsoever. I, I just felt fearless over there if I was honest. Mm-hmm. But again, it's a different thing to be in a convoy and a, and a jeep or a, or a armored personnel carrier gets blown to high heaven and you've got five mates in it. That, you know, that's a completely different scenario, Alan. And I won't pretend I, I could even understand it. I think everybody, everybody's got their own own way it affects everybody obviously different but then it's when you're coming out of it it's for me it was the how how to learn to deal with it how to and i can deal with it i mean obviously you know i I mean i've got even now i've still got the ptsd and but funnily enough i mean especially with the peshmerga even on a front line in that I mean, for me, I was, I was more, for me, it was about being back with your mates, been there in the shit and been with that comradeship where with obviously the different languages and what have you. I mean, you know, my Kurdish is crap, <laughs> you know what I mean? But just that one look and been with your, your brothers in arms, there's nothing, there's nothing like it. And so for me, everything was about learning how to deal with it, how to cope with it. And I, I do it in my own way. I, I can't, I can't set my, my, let my, my, my mind has to be busy all the time. I have to be focused on something or I, I can, I go back into that hard, that, that dark place, you know, it's, so I think it's, it's for every, everybody's got their own way. Everybody has got their own way. And yeah, sorry. Is it? No, no, you're you're explaining very well, Alan. Is it one particular incident that triggers you? Is it a combination of just seeing war? There's a combination, but for me, I can obviously now, I can deal with the war side of it because you're with your mates. For, For me, a lot of it is when I'm sitting there myself and my mind just isn't busy on something and I go back into that, if you know what I mean. I have to, that's why I always have to be busy. My mind has to stay busy. I can't sit just, I have to be focused on something, really focused, because that keeps my mind in a, a place, a safe place for me. Yeah. So for, me, it's a, for me, it's all about, it's, but it's not about any one thing. It's a, a combination of my mind just, fuck, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I've been there. I, I've, I've been at that lowest point where I'm lucky to be here now. I've been there twice. And then, but then there was only that one way up. And for me, it's, I just now deal with it in my own way. It has to be in my own way. I can't yeah, do it any other way. Could you describe the the spiral how did you get down to that place i'm assuming you were back in the uk 
Yeah, but this is all going back to sort of 98 and stuff. It's not now. Mm. Um, it's as in um, what I'm meaning is it's not um, that lowest space for me started back in the late 90s. At, um, and I'll never, I can't really put, I've got maybe, I've got close to two years that I'm very, very much a blank on. I didn't see it. And I'll never forget, we were on QRF one night and we're sat in armor and uh, my platoon commander, who was a color sergeant, and he'd came from the 1st Battalion and joined eight. And I'll never forget, there was it was like four in the morning, three in the morning or something. And I was just sitting up. I was just sitting there and I'll never forget. He went for a piss, comes back, and he just looked at me and he's like, Look, Alan, you need to go and see somebody. I can see it. You've got, you need to see somebody. You, you know what I mean? There's nothing to be ashamed of, but I can see that you're, you've got PTSD. And I was like, fuck off, as you do, like, you know? And, but back then, as you know, it was also, you didn't get that. It wasn't as free to, accept and go and admit back then as well it was only just starting i think to come out if you know what i mean sorry could i just um sorry <laughs> yeah no worries um, so, so yeah so, for me so it was you, all a, com a combination there's no one sort of point that it all you know and then what? before i before i knew it i was yeah were you drink? Were you drinking a lot? Yeah, yeah. That's a killer, yeah. isn't it? If you chuck alcohol in the mix, I, I think it was. It seemed that the way the the. the I mean, anybody from I mean, even soldiers now, we're all you know, we were always heavy drinkers, especially when you join a Scottish or a Northern Irish battalion in particular, you know. So drink was always. Uh, always a big thing but then you started to use well i started to use it as that pillar to try and but again that it did nothing it it, it made it worse and worse and i just didn't realize and that's why now i've i mean i've not had a drink in uh a long time um probably since new years and even then it was only a, a probably a bottle of champagne or something but i'm one of these that now if i go for a bevy i can't stop at one or two pints i've got to go the full hog but then that put starts putting you back so it's better now just not even you know what i mean i mean it's now i i was a lot a heavy drinker for a long time and it was a sort of coping mechanism you know and don't get me wrong i've been absolutely shit-faced um, you know, when we, I'll never forget, it was <laughs> the, the worst I've been in a long time was um, end of, uh, end of 2016. And me and this uh, photojournalist, he'd been through this offensive with us and we were finished. That was ISIS, finished, done, finished, kaput. They were finished in Kurdistan final part of the Mosul battle was going on and I just lost a friend 
and we went and got because we went off the front it was like right now it's time we'll cut start cutting the guys down right Brittany, you fuck off have some happy time in herbal and i'll never forget that that is the drunkest i've been in many years but both of us ended up doing it but with everything that we just needed to release that that steam mm. so yeah so mm. how come then alan if if you've already been through the mill what what was it made you pick up you know pick up arms again and go so you went out you joined what the pesh merger Peshmerga, yeah, Peshmerga, and, yeah. and they are in fighting in Syria. Am I? Am I... Um, no, they're 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 Kurdistan, um, yeah, Kurdistan, but... Iraq, north yeah. northern Iraq. And... Right, I'm just checking a map because I'm sure there'll be people listening that are as confused, um, confused as I am. So you've got the Kurds who are the, the world's largest people without a country. Yeah. They mm -hmm. spread across Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. And Iran. And Iran. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because I've, I've, I've driven to India mm. and back, and so I've been through these, these territories. They're kind mm. of like a mountain, well, desert stroke mountain people. Yeah, the... Um... I actually, uh, we had a unit of uh, Iranian Peshmerga volunteers with us, um, Parti Azari, Kurdistan, and um, they got a lot of females with them. I think they sent you some photos. And yeah, they're true warriors, <laughs> true warriors like. But all the Kurds are warriors. They've got that, that spirit. I mean, the Peshmerga stands for those who face death. You know, they fought against Saddam. They, they've seemed to have spent their whole history fighting they're surrounded by this mentality you know the kurds are very secular people and but they're surrounded by this mentality that just you know whether it be turkey whether it be the iraqis the iranians the syrians you know the syrian government it's yeah it's um yeah <laughs> yeah they they just get picked on don't they because they don't they don't conform i suppose but it's there's a lot of there seems to be a, a lot of many there's it's there's a saying when you go into Kurdistan set your clock forward 1400 years if you because they're surrounded by this mentality especially they've got the Iranians on one side you know and the Iranians they've got the Turks on another side who are supposed to be NATO allies you've got that Baghdad's not as bad but what you've the problem you've got just now is the Iranian influence within Iraq, the Hastashabi groups and what have you. And then also you've got them now, they've got the northeast of Syria, the Turks have uh, uh, partly invaded, and the Turks weren't attacking ISIS when they attacked last year. They were attacking the Kurds who fought against ISIS from day one. You know, it, it's a crazy, over 250, 300,000 or if not more, Kurds got displaced. It's crazy. And I was in in the likes of Al Hall, where there's 65,000 West uh, 65,000 ISIS getting held. Whether that's uh, there's 11,000 Westerners, the rest of them are Iraqi and um, Syrian. And I'll tell you, the reaction from ISIS at that time 
was because if the Turks get them, they're free. Literally, the Turks are putting them on home uh, on a pl plane home here just now, and then they're getting back here, and there's no charges for them. Samia Hussein got, but I, I interviewed her last year in Al Hall. She got back in in February, for God's sake. She's not been charged. She married an ISIS fighter. You know something? She lost her arm on an airstrike, um, part of her breast and her leg. She's probably getting better treatment on the NHS at the minute than vets that fought for their country and lost limbs for their country. That's what we're facing. Sorry, I've got off track there, haven't I? <laughs> no, no, you make a valid point. And I just would like people at home to realise this is an agenda. It's done for a reason. The reason I, that certain ethnicities in our country are allowed to run wild and do, you know, these horrendous acts is because it's divide. It's creating division. It's it's um, and it's divide and divide and conquer. Divide and it's actually divide and and rule. I'm not going to go along that lines because I mean the government has stripped the likes of Jack Letts, for example, of his citizenship. It seems to be a lot of it seems to do with. You've got to remember, we've got the human rights and all the rest of this in Europe and in Britain. Now, you've got to remember for a trial, you've got two, the Beatles, two Beatles have just been sent back, to, uh, been extradited from Syria to America at the minute. Now, the condition he, of that, extra, the, the, yeah, they were, jihad, you know, the, the jihadists were beheading the likes of Alan Henn and David Haynes, James Foley. Yeah. Well, the... Beatles have just, the two of them have just been charged and are going to stand trial in America. Now, part of that extradition was they don't face the death penalty. That was part of the, you know, because of the human rights and all the rest of this. But Britain should have said, well, they've killed your citizens. You put them on, on trial under your bloody laws. You know what I mean? You want to hang them? Hang them. You want to put them on the chair? Put them on the chair. But no, we have to put a condition that affects the justice. Now, you've got every single Western ISIS I've interviewed. They are screaming to get back to the UK. Now, under our laws and under Europe, you wouldn't be able to use half the evidence against them, you, if any of it, that's come from Syria and from Iraq. You wouldn't be able to get the witnesses across here. You wouldn't, there's so many different factors. And I think that's where, but at the same time, every single Westerner that joined ISIS joined a prescribed terrorist organization. Now, why have they at least not been charged with that? At least with that, because we, it's clear. Samia Hussein, for example, the British government and all this have said, we're investigating her. Right, I'll tell you right now, oh, you're investigating them, or are you? I spent five days talking to her to get her on camera over two days. Has anybody approached me from UK security, UK justice, UK government? No. And I'll tell you right now, she married an ISIS fighter. She actually divorced them in a Sharia court. That means she's got power across there. But I clicked on that she was more than what she was letting on anyway, to be honest. But I'll not go too much into it. <laughs> no, I mean, it, I, I, I'm just searching for answers in this, in this 
well because somebody needs to someone needs to, to look a bit further than the the, the bbc nine o'clock news that, right that's why i've went to the documentary you've got right i went from fighting against them i'm used to seeing them in a scope of rifle and even the british government had a bigger problem with me than they got return on isis on that one but that's another story but anyway i'm used to seeing these pigs through a scope but then um, it was it was a more an isis fighter we captured and he was sitting there it was actually during a, a middle of a battle and he was crapping himself he thought well that's me i'm finished but he didn't realize that we go by the geneva convention obviously you know what i mean so you know it's it's, it's what it is we're we're so anyway, I'll never forget, and I, I said to him, uh, I'm, we're, we've got him sat there, hands tied behind him, blah, blah, blah. And I, I turned around with my turp, my friend Ali, and I was like, right, I need to ask him. And I was like, why? And, you know, you've got this whole, whole town destroyed, and I'm like, why? What was this? What the hell was this for? And you know what he said to me? He said... ISIS captured Mosul. There was no government, there was no money, there was nothing. The only way for me to feed my family was join Dash. And also, he started going on about Hastashabi, the Iranian groups. And you know, something I could, I can understand because I've, I've interviewed and sat and spoke to many, many ISIS prisoners from Syria, from Iraq. I understand their, I can understand them more but it's it's a local thing for them so they haven't joined for a lot of them they haven't joined purely because of the ideology they've joined maybe because of money because they've been insulted it's by hastashabi because the tribal leader has given the the tribe over over there's many different reasons but the westerners are 100 percent they joined for the Sharia, for the Caliphate, Dal Islami, as they call it, as they put that, for the, you know what I mean? They joined 100% because they believed 100% in the building of that Caliphate. They're actually, in many cases, there's, there's more extreme, all the beheadings of Western hostages that you saw, done by Westerners. Yeah, we, we, I'm going to come on and talk about that because something was. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 I know no, I do no. kind of go on. <laughs> my, 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 my point is, is they're not going to be prosecuted when they come back to this country because no. No. The, 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 the money that what I call the money mafia, the people that run the whole planet, they want fighters to go out there. They want they want uh, I... they want to fund this conflict. They want the fighters to then come back to the UK oh. and for the British people to be upset and for I can, no, I can't. No, I don't go along any of that. And that the reason I've spent these people, Western ISIS are pure and simple because they believe in the caliphate. There is, I've seen all the, you know, all the other stuff and all the rest of this, but the reality is what's going on on the ground. And, you know, there's no funding from the West. There's no this. I've seen this arming from the West. All the Western arms that you see ISIS with 
come came from when they captured Mosul. Now that stems back to Maliki at the time, who was the mm. Maliki was actually close to Iran, always very close. It was for him, it wasn't about Iraq, it was about the Sunni Shia. <coughs> now Maliki, <coughs> sorry, Maliki, he right, there's a good friend of mine, a guy called General Noradin. He's fought against ISIS from long before they were called ISIS. Anyway, he was telling me about phone calls he was getting from other generals in Mosul, crying on the phone because Maliki told the two divisions to retreat from Mosul. It was only been attacked by 800 to 1,000 Western, um, by ISIS. However, by that pullback all the way back to Baghdad, it brought the West back in because obviously the West like shit, we've got to stop this. But it also allowed Iran and its Hastashabi back in to Iraq in force. So all of this has stemmed from across there. ISIS only started, did you know, did you know ISIS only started off in one village. They were basically ex-Bathists and what have you. And they saw the civil war going on. They're like, holy shit. So because they were mainly ex-Iraqi army and what have you, they went across to Syria and they started building up, building and building because they bought training, they bought experience. Yeah, they bought all of that. But come Mosul, two divisions of equipment got captured by ISIS. American equipment that had been... Um, the given sold to the Iraqi army. A lot of this problem stems from a, um, we pulled out of Iraq too soon. As as much so, as 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 political expediency, we should. Are you pull out saying too soon. you don't think ISIS has been funded by anybody, let alone? I don't like to call it the West because to me the the world isn't run by West and East or this country or that. It's run by the the money criminals. Um, no, it's I mean they captured eight hundred million, for example, and um, eight they captured eight hundred million dollars from a bank in Mosul. Yeah. They've been selling um, oil from the oil fields that they captured to in Syria to the Assad regime. And by the convoy load through Turkey, again through Turkey, you know. Where did oh, they? This is internal. The, the, there was that famous scene where they're all driving Toyota pickup trucks, right? Captured. Wow. All of that was captured. You've got to remember that they were taking towns, they were taking cities. Um, there was local deals done with local tribes. Now, part of the speed of ISIS was to do with, there was a lot of lo tribes in advance were basically swearing allegiance to ISIS. So they'd be going into whole areas. Mosul, for example. Um, Mosul is one perfect example. They had people in there. And to be honest, the people, a lot of the people in Mosul saw ISIS and many other places as basically, we when it comes to across there, you've got to forget the Western way of thinking. Across there, the Iraqi government and Maliki was uh, was treating the Sunnis like dirt. They couldn't get jobs. They couldn't get 
anything. So when ISIS came along, they were like, well, it can't be any worse than Maliki. You know what I mean? So they, sw- they, they, they were like, right, we'll support it because it's, again, the Sunni Shia thing. Whereas the Westerners have joined purely because of the caliphate and the wow. Sharia and the, you know what I mean? That's there's a total, complete difference. So what, let me put it to you then. Do you, what? Oh, sorry. Do you know the Kurds? They're, they're actually, they're, they're Sunni. They're the same, they're the same religion as ISIS, yet the Kurds are the ones that fought from day one. And to be honest, they've saved, they've been the front line against ISIS from day one. But it's not only Kurds. You've got the Kurds don't see it as religion; they just see it as humanity. You've got you've got Kurds. You've got a few Christians, not too many, because they like everybody else to do the fighting for them. Um, you've got Yazidis that are units with them. You've got Shabaks that are with them. So you know the Kurd Kurdish forces are very very mixed, and they've got Arabs as well, local Arabs with them as well. So going so, back to the to the UK thing, what why do you think this? Um fighters are coming back here and, and they're not getting prosecuted in any way. Right. I, I think there's a couple, a couple of different reasons. Um, I mean, I've obviously got a massive, massive issue with it because to be honest, I've had not only me, but there's been others that fought against ISIS from Britain. We get more hassle than ISIS that return to this country. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm aware I, I'm, of it. I'm not joking. I, you know what I mean. But as for the, the ones that have returned, I, I think there's. ISIS think long term. Which sorry, I'm getting off track here. Um, with the Brit, I think the ones that are coming back to the West because it's not only Britain this this happening in. It's France. It's Germany. It's, it's all to do with the evidence. It's all to do with, um, our human rights. We can't bring the the. We there's you know a good defense lawyer is going to destroy evidence that's came across from the ground in Syria from in Iraq, but there's there's clearly not enough investigation been done. There's definitely not enough investigations. There should be some sort of um, some sort of panel set up like there was for the Nuremberg trials to investigate this because the because. The Westerners, now another thing as well, especially the Western women, everybody thinks the likes of the Yazidi sex slaves were just abused by the fighters. Trust me, in many cases, Western women were involved in the abuse. Because you've got to remember when the fighter goes back to the front, who's the boss? It's the female, it's the woman of the house. And she was, she treats the, the, the women were treating the Yazidi sex slaves and others were in many cases worse than the men were, believe it or not. And that's come from oh. Yazidis themselves, because obviously, you know, I rescued a Yazidi from Al Hall. You know, she was held by ISIS for what, five years. What does Yazidi mean, mate? All right, Yazidi is <clears throat> a Yazidi is a, a religious group across in in northeast Iraq, the Nineveh Plains area. So, you know, they live side by side. They're basically, it's it's a religion that goes back thousands of years. And in all honesty, as much dealings as I've had with the Yazidis, I mean, I've been in their religious 
you know, their um, Lalouche, their most holiest of place, and I have a lot of dealings. But even now, I don't kind of understand the Yazidi religion. It, for them, it's about colours. It's about it's not it's not there's so many different things. Even I have trouble understanding their religion. But you know, they're harmless people. They just what left in peace, mm. and they're seen as devils, devil worshippers by ISIS. That's why ISIS treated the Yazidi more than it. There's countless mass graves. The the ISIS came in, pretty much did exactly the same as it's. In fact, it's almost like they copied them. Um, the as the Nazis did to Jewish towns, cities, and villages. They separated the women, children, the men, and boys under over a certain age. The men went away. They were put into mass graves, stood over the graves, and there's still now mass graves been found. Then the women, as the world has seen, women and children were then sold. Some of the younger children were actually forced into ISIS and became brainwashed because they were so young. Yeah. It's it's what's happened to them. And, you know, also people forget with ISIS, if you're not with ISIS, you're against them. It doesn't matter your age, your sex, your religion. It doesn't matter. How strong are they then? What, what How many people stronger are ISIS now? It's hard to put a figure on it just now. They are... Um, the coronavirus has actually given them a breathing space. They have started, and especially in Iraq, they've started again kidnapping because uh, they're raising funds. They've started more ambushing on Iraqi army and uh, the Iranian groups as well, because there's this breathing, there's this space as well. There's this, this you know, Iraq's just such a big country. They're still strong. Um, are they making, they're, they're, it's almost like back to the insurgency days pre-2014. But they are strong. And if anybody thinks they aren't, then they'll be doing online recruitment, which seemingly they are doing. They're doing online recruitment again in the West. So can we talk about your your role in action then? How did you become a, a, a sniper? Well, I wasn't a sniper in the British Army. Um, I was just a marksman. I got qualified marksman. But because of our training, um, I mean, I, I shot more more rounds in probably a, a week on the ranges than, I mean, I was on the SLR, trained on the SLR initially as well before the SA-80. So our training, that's a, a skill, that's sort, the, the sort of training we got as British soldiers or what have you, is what they, you know, the Kurds could dream of. <clears throat> You'll see, I mean, I was having to teach some of them how to do um, zero a dragon off, for example. You know, they'd have a sniper rifle, but they they didn't even know some didn't even know how to zero the rifle because it, you know, it just looked good for them. <laughs> you get I me? Mean? So uh, basically, when I got across there um, again, it was it was a guy called General Noradin. Actually, he'd spent a lot of time in. And he's got a mental reputation amongst the Americans and what have you. And he spent a lot of time. He was actually the coordinator with the SF teams that used to come in as well. But he's um, he's the one that got me to seven brigades. 
and obviously he understood the skills and what have you. But I'd also spent a lot of time before that on the lead up to help and train Peshmerger. So they knew I could shoot. So it, it comes down to bringing skills that we've got as soldiers. Um, and the British infantry, the, the tra training that we got is second to none. You know, that. so you're bringing them skills with you. We'd all be considered snipers, wouldn't we, at our level of competence? L literally, literally any British soldier, but um, yeah, literally any British soldier would be, because it, again, it comes down to our training. Our, we've had more range time in a week, a week on the ranges than some of these guys have had in, you know, 12 years, 20 years. You know, that's the reality of it. And what, what used to happen occasionally, actually, was I'd have to prove it to certain people, you know. And I'll never forget there was this one time, right? And there was this captain. And uh, he was, because everything's about face across there and all the rest of this. And he's like, eh, Britannia, you can shoot. And I'm like, eh. So anyway, he um, he took a couple of a couple of shots at this this target that was like it was about 100, 150 meters away or something. You know, we're just in this in the, the valley, just at the back of the front, like. And uh, I was I was like, uh, uh, is, that, is that the case? Is it? So and funnily enough, the reason I was there anyway was I was actually uh, doing a check zero, and. Uh, there was this uh, had a target already set up on this rock, and it was like three hundred meters away. And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah." So I actually stood up and took the shot. Bang! Took it out. Then I did the kneel. Did the same again. And all of them were like, "Shit, okay, you can shoot." <laughs> you know what I mean? So you had to prove that you, you know. But again, that comes down to British Army training, so second to none. What what weapon was that? I used the, the Dragonoff, the Russian Dragonoff, okay. um, and the round is uh, it's seven point six two fifty four R, so it's bigger than the SLR GPMG round for uh, the British set standard. I think so, it's uh, a long, a longer round. It, it's a bigger, thicker round. I think the one that we use in the British Army was uh, R fifty one. I think, um, but yeah, I had to use Russian ammo not Bulgarian, Romanian or whatever, because otherwise you always get the same stoppage. So you had to use the Russian ammo. There's definitely better ammo like. Um, so yeah, I used a Russian-made a Russian Dragonoff. And who and provided you with that weapon? Peshmerga. Okay. And am I right in thinking there's sort of websites you can sign up for this organisation and they, they arrange, your, arrange your transport or... No, 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 no. Right. This is right. There's this fake. I call it a fake false facade. Right. And it pretty much is. I fell out with most of the most of these people because they didn't see, let alone fight ISIS. There are keyboard warriors doing all this recruitment online and all the rest of this. I could walk you right now into the Ministry of Peshmerger. You've seen. Right, I could introduce you, and I've had the discussions, and all the generals are like, what's this bullshit on? There's a language barrier. Westerners use that language barrier. And 
they were recruiting and all the rest of these, but how do you think so many of them came across? There was a lot of, a lot of people with fantastic, brilliant intentions. They wanted to fight ISIS. You ask them, how many of them actually lived on the front line and fought against ISIS as a Peshmerga? I'll tell you what, it's a handful. Because you couldn't just go across there. The Peshmergas, you know, the, the Pesha's got coalition training. It's part of the, you know what I mean? They, this was a, a thing by groups online. I, I could, I mean, I, I'm not going to go too much into it, but the trolling that I've had from these Muppets is just beyond work. I've had more trolling from them than I have from ISIS. <laughs> you get what I mean? But it's a bit of a myth about this online recruitment side. I know people that got across there and then they were totally ignored by these people or they only, you know, a small of them, they only lasted a few months. Why? Because it wasn't what they were told it was going to be. They, they weren't getting on a front line. They weren't fighting. They weren't, it was a big myth. There's this, it's a, I call it the fake false facade. That's what I call it. And trust me, it is. But everybody jumps on and they start, you know, to me, a, a photo, a video says a thousand words. You ask these people for any of that. So you know, I've seen the fake, I've seen fake interviews in the press. I'll never forget in one in particular, this guy, Ben, gives this interview. The attack he talked about happened three months earlier. You know what I mean? As for the abuse of the shipments were in the prisoners, don't give us that crap you know what i mean but yeah that's a, another different side that a completely different side uh, i don't particularly want to get into that side because for me it was i did my thing i always do and i still do my own thing but yeah as for this online recruitment forget about it. a lot of it was it's facebook that's all they were all they yeah. were yeah. you know don't get me wrong though there was some that actually did live on a front line and fight, but you'll find that they were people that went and did their own thing with a the pesh. They didn't, they kept away from these groups and all the rest of this. That was the ones that actually did. Hmm. But it's the same as, um, yeah, there's, it's another story that may, another story, Chris, sorry. Um, yeah, no, but, it's okay, yeah. I, it's, I, I'm, a, I'm, aware still, that, sorry? I'm aware that there's a lot of online politics. I, I know- Very, um, very much. Again, mentioning no names, but I know someone who's worked over there and um, I've seen the kind of like he'll put a post on Facebook and it just generates so many responses. And and it's it's almost looks like teenagers bicker, bickering over, over a, an yeah. Xbox game or something. Right. I got into this mistake. Um there was an interviewer I was asked to do, and this guy, I was one of the very first to be a volunteer and fight against ISIS. Now, I came back, and there was this guy, suddenly he was on at me. He was what made it, he was trying to get me to do it. He was what that basically made it not only do recruitment, but he was basically wanting to, it was, they were wanting to do a bloody documentary, so I tell them to F off, basically. Anyway, to cut a long story short, suddenly I'm getting all these messages and I'm talking, I'm getting hundreds. How to recruit them. Now, something that I never, ever did was recruit people. Never. 
And I'd be a bit flippant sometimes. Maybe I was a bit, you know, it's like, I get lunatics send me a message. I go hunting the weekend. I'm, I'm, I'm good on PlayStation or whatever, you know, all this sort of stuff. And I'm ex-British Army, so I've got a bit of a smart arse attitude. But I kind of say it as it is as well. It's like, I'm not a babysitter kid. You know what I mean? And a response like that can get you trolled to hell for the rest of your days by that person. So I'd be like, listen, I'm not recruiting you. I'm not, I'm not going to help you. I had to do it myself. You want to do it, then do it. But I would have been in a lot of trouble with the, the, the British even more if I was recruiting. But at the end of the day, if something happened to one of them, I, I, I'll never forget one day. I'll give you this, this one. I'll never forget this one day. This guy comes up to me. And I'm like, he's like, hi, I'm Dean. I'm American. Um, I'm like, yeah. And I was packing my gear and all the, I was, anyways, packing my gear. And he's like, stand there over me. And I was just wanting to get on with what I was doing. Anyway, I says, uh, so uh, what, what, what did you do before this? And he's like, I was a, sur a surfer, man. I'm like, what? Anyway, I, I, that kind of summed up a lot of them. <laughs> you know what I mean? But then there was an attack, ISIS attack one night. And He, oh, sorry. Before that, he started giving it, I can fight, I can do this. And I'm like, what, can you change the mag in the middle of a firefight? Blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? I was just like, uh, by this thought, I was like, Jesus. Anyway, ISIS attacked and this guy hid, you know. There was guys getting across there. There's this guy, he was um, one of my worst trolls, actually. He claimed to be three para, but he didn't know his CEO, let's just say. <laughs> anyway, I heard he did get across there. And he actually abandoned somebody in his very first fight, abandoned and did a runner, never to be seen again. You know, I'm not a babysitter, but if somebody, um, what, what if I took somebody across and they got killed? How can I explain that to his family? How could I live with that as well? You, you know what I mean? So yeah. it was never my place to do that. And I'm pretty disgusted by these groups, uh, you know, and there's not only the recruitment side, money. That's a big one. Sorry, I'll go back to it. I was asked to do this piece and it was this guy who was basically investigating for the pesh. And he said, look, we need somebody to basically open the story up. So I spoke to the London Evening Express, I think it was. So I opened it up for him and said, yeah, there's a lot of this going on, a lot of that going on. Then he jumped in after that. It was basically to open it up for him. Anyway, the trolling that I got after that was shocking. There was another, this, a certain group on Facebook made claims about medical equipment sent to Bashika. I think it was £30,000 uh, £30, worth. Well, I called this out because I was at Bashika and I've actually got generals that are actually seeing it as well. And David Eubank, free Burma Rangers, even he was like, what are they talking about? So I called this out, this claim that they made. It never got there. Now, where did all that money go to? Nobody ever saw it. The only time I did see some medical equipment, they basically nicked it off an American that posted it across there and it was lying in a heap on the floor. Um, and then this group 
accused the uh, Zeravani of stealing this um, equipment. They don't know that I was actually at this base because we were trying to get it to our area. And I was up there with a captain and the general was actually on the phone with their major trying to sort out what was going on and all this stuff. The, the amount of stuff I could go into, this is, it's a different story and it's not really, it's just because you've mentioned that side. So I have to bring it up. But the trolling that I got for that, for, for maybe, you know, for not helping recruit, for calling out what was going on has just been, you know, when, you know, even people connected to that, do you know what they actually did? They were sending rape and death threats to my missus and they actually posted reward posters and my UK family address with photos of my house online. It wasn't ISIS that did that, it was them. Mm. And I will never, that's why come the book, I'll be call, calling a few out and I look forward to them trying to sue me because I've got generals, I've got people that, that destroy them. Um, I'm not saying this just out of, you know, um, payback's a bitch. On a slightly lighter note, I spoke to Dave Eubank this morning oh. and, and he gets, sends his best wishes and all his love to you. Mm. He said, you mean the mad Scotsman? <laughs> <laughs> David is, um, he was with us a lot. Can I tell you a story about David actually? Keep and for people that, if you want to explain David's story actually before I do it. Yeah, so um, Alan very kindly put me in touch with an incredible gentleman, Dave Eubank, David Eubank. Um, if you want, you'll I encourage everybody to watch the podcast I did with him this morning. Um, he came to prominence in the media fairly recently uh, or in the last uh, two or three years because he carried out an incredibly brave rescue of a little girl that was under fire and there was a being careful what I say because I'm going to get kicked off YouTube but you know there was let's just call it carnage all around her I think you know what I'm trying to say um like 70 carnages all, all around her and Dave just ran out and he organized this this rescue and he got the Americans to put down smoke and um, he got a local commander to uh, lend him a vehicle and yeah again the the either I've done the, I've posted the podcast or go and watch it or I'm I'm going to post it so did yeah. he tell you sorry Chris did he tell you if you, on the full video, you see one of the guys that was the his team that was given him the cover and firing. And as he came back in, he started limping. Um, he actually got hit. ISIS hit, hit him in the the um, uh, bottom of his foot. So they did. On yeah, that. I gathered that. <clears throat> yeah, it's uh, David is uh, David Eubank and the Free Burma Rangers are. I've never ever seen a group like them, and I wish all in so-called NGOs, as I call them, were with like anything close to them. Um, David is uh, a truly, and it's all group. 
Um, my good friend with um, Shaheen, he was a Yazidi translator for David. He got killed in Mosul as well, hit by a sniper. And David Eubank and the Free Burma Rangers are truly an amazing group that truly, truly make a difference to no matter what your faith. And he's the strongest. But anyway, I'll give you a story on Dave. <laughs> it was one night and a pesh comes up and he's like, oh, Dr. Dave, Dr. Dave, dentist. And Dave's like, dentist, dentist, sort of tough. Dave's like, yeah. And the guy's like, oh, yeah. And Dave just, I, I'm like watching this night. Dave's suddenly like, hmm, grab a chair. So, says to his daughter, right? And it's pitch black. So anyway, next thing, they get this chair. And I'm like, Dave, have you ever done dentistry before? He says, I've pulled a couple of dog's teeth. I'm like, right, okay. So anyway, this guy pushes him back into this chair and his daughter's got the phone out for light. She gives him this syringe. Next thing, the syringe is in this guy's mouth. Anyway, <clears throat> he missed the initial spot. So anyway, this guy's like screaming, trying to get out of the chair. Dave's pushing him back in. So eventually, suddenly after he gets the injection, he's like, oh, it's, yeah, it's basha, basha, real, you know, real good. So anyway, next thing, Dave's pulling out this tooth and he slips. He's got his foot on the guy. The guy's trying to get out of the chair. Swear to God, one of the funniest things I've ever seen. It's one of these, I think you'd have to have been there to see it. But, but Dave in general, um, one of the bravest people I've ever come across. Uh, uh, he's ex-Rangers, US Rangers as well. Yeah, but, his, yeah uh, Dave's uh, special US Special Forces Green Green Beret, as they as they to use the American word. Um, I want to get back to your story though, sure. <laughs> Alan, because I'm going to be honest. It's it's one of the most fascinating chats I think I've had in my life. And I, I, I know I'm, I'm going to be speaking for lots of people at home. Um, how did you get to the front line then the first time? What... Um, for me, I, I sort of worked my way through. So I was basically training, helping train Peshmerger and what have you. So I was building up this. They were getting how, to know how, me. how did you get in country is what I'm trying to say. I just flew in. I just flew in. I don't really go into all the details of all of that. Well, it's um, probably, probably best not to, isn't it? Otherwise, we'll yeah, because you, yeah, you'll have I st even now. I still get people, How do I join? I'm like, Oh, you're five years too late, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, I ended up getting across there, and it was basically, you know, you need to start learning not only a bit of the language, but you have to learn the culture as well, and also. The Peshmerga had started learning that Westerners, they needed to babysitting a lot of them. Not all of them, but again, there was a lot of babysitting. So the, that's why you don't see Pesh putting the whole, you know what I mean, the shebang in. They don't do all of that. In the end, I was the only Westerner allowed in Seven Brigade because they kicked out another. And the other one, they kicked, in fact, they kicked out two, sorry. Uh, one I was surprised about. I really liked him, actually. But uh, again, it was about you had to prove that you, you didn't need babysitting and but ex-British Army are training, obviously, you know, we were used to the, you can't I mean, so I, I didn't need the babysitting. So it was a, a lot of different things involved in it. And then eventually it suddenly 
right, we trust this guy, he doesn't need babysitting, he can get by. But obviously with my role, I, I worked a lot. I, I worked, you know, I only answered to the general. I didn't answer to anybody else but the general. So I'd come up and be like, general would look at me, you know, I'd, be, I'd come walking into the base because I was wanting to get changed in a shower or whatever. And, or come up for decent food because I heard that media were there so there'd be decent food instead of the frontline rice and what have you, you know? And the general, you'd be like, leaving, leaving. And I'd be like, oh, I've been down at Lofer or up in here. And he just like shake the head and he's like, okay, okay. Keep, keep me informed, you know what I mean? But I pretty much had a, you know, I only really answered to him, but out of respect and all this, I would, you know what I mean, play the game, except with, we all have them, we've all came across them. Obviously you get the odd, you know, the old second Louis and all this, and he's like, go away, you lunatic, you know what I mean? And the, the, there was nothing that they could do, because it's like, once you're, because of the structure, it's a slightly different structure than it is, say in the British or the American army or what have you, the rank structures are a bit different. It's all by respect and a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And even knowing what to call somebody Sadie, like a general would be uh, Sadie, you know what I mean? Um, it's like a different respect. So it's all of that that you had to learn as well, but you had to prove yourself that you didn't need babysitting. And that was the problem too many. I know a whole group got booted. The pest just had enough. And it was like, get these guys out of here. You know, and a lot of the guys were jumping place to place because they were getting booted. That was the, pro you know, you'll see these different groups and they're making on their this and that, but they were actually getting booted. That's the reality of it. The pest were like, and in the end, you know. <laughs> Did you go there, Alan, for the action? Or did you go there because you wanted to make a difference? I was about to say um, I wanted to make a difference. Um, there, there's a lot of different reasons. This isn't just sort of one reason. I'll never forget sitting, watching what was going on across there. And I, I kind of realised that if they weren't stopped there, then it would become a bigger problem. So I wanted to make a, a difference. And you know, I'll be totally honest, I, I did also miss that comradeship, that bond that only soldiers have, mm. um, which any... got me through this. It was that bond, even though it's different language, that bond and that, that look, just that one look without having to say something, that 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 bond as well was part of it and that's what helped me get through it but also a firm firm belief that isis had to be destroyed yeah on the front line not on a keyboard not sitting back wherever they had to be destroyed there um and what i can't say and thank enough is family support got me through it as well my other half i'm not going to say her name and that because of obviously trolls and what have you but um you know the support i got from her not only during the peshmerga but this documentary side as well is i i can't um thank her enough and i owe her i owe her everything um you, you know any um 
Did you get any like trolling that she went through? And I'd like to add, whilst the worst of the trolling was going on, her mother was actually dying of cancer, and these trolls were, yeah. So to be cruel, man, and and then and they don't even realise how cruel they're being. Especially when it's you know it's you know they're bringing in family and they're bringing in you know. You got a problem with me, you know. As one of them groups, actually, he was, you know, even though they still troll me, but I actually met him, and uh, I turned around. I was like, and there's people that saw this that were there, and I turned around. I was like, right, you're off the keyboard now. Come back to the back of the Humvee. We'll sort it out. And I was like, right, we'll sort it out here, man to man, square go. He shook in his boots. And then he was all trying to make on. He was this friend whilst in that time he was there. And then after the left, back to that keyboard. <laughs> that sums up your trolls. They're nothing face to face. Nothing. Sorry. No, it's, it's okay. The, the I, was a big part of all of this. <laughs> well, I can see it's uh, it's affected you, Alan. And um, yeah, well, I get the last laugh because, as far as I'm concerned. I did what I said I was doing. I helped. Did I make a difference? It's not up to me to say it's up to others. Mm. Um, I ca carried on with what I was doing. I lived and I fought against ISIS alongside the Peshmerga. And um, I've got many, many friends across there. And then I've now went on to the documentary side. And I've got what a lot of the world's media were screaming to get but I'm not in that clique. So uh, I'll not go too much into that because we've obviously got the production company speaking to major channels as we speak. Um, there's gonna be, it's gonna be on the American and British channel. Um, we're in sort of last phases of everything, let's say. <laughs> are, you, are you filming in 4K? Yes. Is that yeah. all in 4K or? or... I'm only asking from a, like a, a fellow creators. Every, everything, I've kept everything in the 4K to keep it standard across the board. Yeah. Because if I was suddenly changing to the 8K and all that, you know, I couldn't do the shopping and changing. And as I say, I had to learn as I went on onto this, you know, I'm suddenly in Al Hall, surrounded by 11,000 Western ISIS with no weapon, no guards. And I'm like, I wasn't expecting this. So suddenly I'm having to try and find bloody cameras and everything it's like oh, you know but yeah i kept everything across the board on the on the 4k yeah and it was it was a lot of it was to do with the interlinking of batteries as well and cards you know yourself yeah of course um just want one a bit of a silly question but do you get like you know crazy paras and bootnecks over there wearing their berries and is that as in volunteers, uh, well, because I pretty much kept away from all these, from the, the tourists, as I call them, I never really saw that. I think there was an American guy, actually, that wore a berry, but I think he just wore the Peshmerga one. <coughs> <coughs> Sorry. Um, I do know that there was a guy claiming to be X3 para that had these four, I think he wore a berry, but he wasn't X3 para. He didn't even know his boss after his five tours of Afghan. 
<laughs> and his boss, sorry, is a guy called Stuart Tootle, and I've got his book, Danger Close, sitting there, because when he first joined the army, he was a second lieutenant, and he was my platoon commander. I was his platoon operator. I was his, um, uh, I was the uh, radio op. So I got to know Stuart very well. And when I turned around to this guy and mentioned Stuart, he's like, he didn't know who he was after five, but I don't think at that time they'd even done five tours of bloody Afghan. But then he, what really got to me was he said that he'd done a marathon for a charity for Mark Wright, the Mark Wright project. And he didn't realize that um, Mark's father, Bob, I'm friends with, and I actually went and met him in Edinburgh and gave him a donation to his charity at that time that was, uh, I don't, it's no longer going, but at that time it was going. So that really, really got to me as well. But any Walter Mitty always gets to our squaddies, you know yourself, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, was, but there was a lot of the Walter Mitty in going on definitely as well, yeah. you know. Who was Mark Wright? He's a, a military cross. He, um, there's a film called uh, Kajafi. Yes, yes. Yes, that's Mark. Incredible film. Yes, well, that is Mark. He won the military cross for get. He was lying there injured, and I, I actually spoke to Stuart a few years ago, and he was telling me about that day because it was obviously a CO, and he was on the in the ops room, and. He, a lot of different things went on that day, obviously, but not, you know, Mark, he, he won that military, he won the military cross, obviously, um, sadly died. But when you have people bringing in, uh, as I, uh, insulting the memory of, you know, him, but not only insulting people like Mark, but, you know, the family, but insulting Paris, by claiming to be a parrot, but also insulting all forces because they're Walter Mitty's are just. <coughs> but there was a lot of that that went on with this online side, you know what I mean? And obviously, you know, like yourself, we can we can smell them a mile off when they don't know certain words and they don't know. They soon give themselves. You soon click on very quickly. It's like. Yeah, there's a lot of that that went on with this so-called volunteers as well. A lot of it. What um, have you been in documentaries, Alan? Um, I actually turned down a lot. There was a documentary maker with me for. He's done a lot of stuff for CNN. Some fantastic stuff, actually. He was selling his work on to them. He's done some of the absolutely fantastic. It was one time ISIS surrounded them in this village. And like, you know, uh, Gabriel Chum, uh, he was at my location for maybe four months, something like that, but I wouldn't let him film me. I would not let him, because again, for me, a part of this journey, it wasn't about me. You know, yes, I did some, uh, yes, I did some media as in paper interviews or whatever have you. But again, that's where it would be because of the language barrier. So, you know, like my general would be like, well, you know, you speak English, yeah, get, do a talk, you know, or when the BBC come down, but the BBC wouldn't focus on me. They'd be focused on the actual, what was going on, the equipment. And my voice was only to pass on, look, you know, look at the equipment we've got, the West's ISIS is 800 meters there. Look at the weapons that we've, the Pesha's got. Uh, 
where's the ammo? Where's the, you know, that sort of thing. So I did a few interviews, you know, like they came on, uh, Orla Gurley actually came on. <laughs> she came when we were capturing a place called uh, Fazalia. Um, I don't think she realised that, that how close she was, she was going to be like. <laughs> I, you know, ID went off um, just in front, like, and it, it was only like 40 metres and this thing was massive. It would have took a tank out, like. Mm. But anyway, yeah, sorry, I got off track there. Um, as in for the documentary side, I only did one, and that was with... Um, that was with a guy, he did the Robin Hood complex. Yeah, uh, yeah. An ex, he's an ex-Marine. Yeah, Emil. Emil, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the only reason, I'd actually said no to him a year before or something, but the I only think, reason... The, the reason I ask, is I'm sure I've seen you somewhere. Maybe it was in Emil's documentary. It's, yeah, it would have been in Emil's because he highlighted the trolling and the infighting and stuff that was going on. But the only reason I spoke to Emil is because... I had respect, obviously, for him being a former Marine, Afghanistan and all the rest of this. But also for me, it was the fact that he'd actually turned up on a front, yeah, he turned up on a front line. He was willing to, to, to follow us into the attacks and what, you know what I mean? Because obviously him being a documentary maker, you know, so all of that, so that's why I, I did that one. That's why I gave him, I did, you know, it was out of respect for him being a Marine, him, um, turning up like he did you know whereas i wasn't willing to do the other documentaries no less because to me it was and also the thing with emil we were on the final offensive that was it that was isis finished from kurdistan and they were getting finished off in mosul which was where uh, about 12 kilometers away at that time because we were doing a cut off we were cutting off um Bashika and all of that from Mosul. So we're cutting, so we had, and as we were going down that way, the Iraqi army was coming up. So there was a basically in the link in and it was all of this, but that's the only documentary I ever done because it was at the end of it all. And anything before that was taken, for me, it was taken away from, it, it was taken away from the, Peshmerga, it was taken away. Why should it be about me? You, you yeah. know what I mean? You know, we're a team, we're all together, we're all in this. And, you know, I did this, uh, the sun turned up and I says, well, I'll tell you what, because he was like screaming for the interview. I says, well, I'll only do it as long as you're putting Pesh in it. So that's where you'll see a video with me and um, Guy Ali, for example, because I had to bring in that Pesh, it couldn't be just about you as the Westerner. And too many Westerners actually went on to it, it made it about them, not about the issue, not about the the guys that you're, you know, it has to be about your unit and, you know, your fellow fighters, your brothers in arms. It can't be. See, yeah, there was that. Sorry, I got off. Yeah. No. <laughs> you know, there's no writing books called Fight Nicest when you didn't see them. You know what I mean? That's not the case for me. I'll tell you that much for none. Have you, are you writing a book? Well, have you written a book? <laughs> right, I think, so, I think you, you mentioned that to me when we spoke yeah. earlier. Yeah. <laughs> right, I'm kind of on curdy time, or curdy sahat, as you yeah. call it. I've, you know yourself, right, and you have to keep, have a clear head. And the last couple of years, it's obviously been the documentary has just taken up everything. 
So I have started, I've got like seven chapters done. A ghostwriter actually came up to see me and he did a couple of chapters, but he, he couldn't get it. He couldn't no. put the reader in, in your shoes, as you know. That's what you want. You want to put the reader into your shoes. You want to give them the, you know, the happy times, the sad times, the good, the bad, the ugly, as it was, as it is. Yeah. And that's, you know, even during a firefight or ISIS are attacking you, you've just lost a friend. You, you Only you can put somebody in that shoes because you, you were there. You're the one that's went through it. Yeah, we can talk, talk more about that off camera. If anyone wants to write their memoir, just get my free. Um, it's either free or sometimes Amazon charges 99p for it. How to write a memoir. And it's all in there. It's for any, I just made it as simple as possible. Everything I did to write, well, I've written uh, three, three memoirs now. It's a very simple process. And I give people pointers, um, you know, how to, to do what you're, you're saying, to put people in the scene. But anyway, I don't want to talk about uh, me. Or no, no, obviously, obviously you, you need to do a bit. <laughs> well, so you, you heard him folks. Chris has got the memoir. Use go and get it. Yeah, just how how to write a memoir. It's for anyone wants wants to write their book. Just just grab a copy of that, and it's a very short read as well, which uh, is never a bad thing. I wanted to ask about these female fighters. Oh, wow, yeah. So they're Kur Kurdish women. Yeah. Join the Peshmerga, or the mm. the y YPK, is it called? No, you've got two different groups. You've got in sit in in um, Iraq Kurdistan or in Iraq Kurdistan you've got the Peshmerga um in Syria you've got the YPG who are now the SDF the Syrian Democratic Forces and they basically consist all sides do you know it doesn't matter whether it's a Pesh or the or the uh, YPG hmm. they all consist of you know females of christian of yazidi of everybody you know so but they're predominantly kurdish led if you you you, you know what i mean but they're not just kurdish muslims they're everybody because yeah. the kurds are very very inclusive it's not about religion it's about you as a person i wanted to ask then these are they're, they're professional fighters, aren't they? They're good. You've got to remember, if it wasn't for ISIS, they'd be housewives. They volunteer yeah. to fight for their country, for their rights, for their people. What, what I'm trying to get, get a sort of angle on is, mm. and I mean, no offence here to anyone whatsoever, but if you were to put your typical British woman <laughs> on the front line, uh, you know, fighting ISIS... Well, for a start, you 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 wouldn't get ninety nine point nine percent of them there, and that tiny percentage you did. Um, well, they, they'd probably be quite good and dedicated. I'm 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 I'm, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. For the same reason, you you know you, you're going to get these ones that are going to try out for special forces now. But bear in uh, mind, sorry, bear in mind, you did have one British woman that uh, died fighting for the SDF in uh, Syria. What's the SDF? Syrian Defence Syrian Defence Forces. It's yeah. that's the white yeah, YPG, but yeah. they're now now collectively the SDF. 
But there yeah. was a British woman that died fighting. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, do, these um, Kurdish women, do they come naturally to it? Or are some of them absolutely useless? How How, how is it? Um, right. And can I just say for, all, for everyone that's going to, you know, get the wrong idea, I, I'm not suggesting every man that rocks up at the front is good. I'm, I've... Oh, far from um, it. There, there's a reason they say um, Royal Marines 99% need not apply, and and, and yeah. that's because 99% couldn't couldn't do the job. Um, I'm just I'm just fascinated in this. This is a, a phenomenon we can say, where these women have gone to the front and they've put up a good old fight, and and it's a, it's a serious business. I'll I'll give you a story about one night. Um, ISIS attacked they were trying to break out their friends who we had um, cut off. Anyway, in fact, David Eubank was there that night. He could, uh, he could have told you about this one. Um, Dash started attacking and pitch black shit was hitting the fan. I'm talking uh, rains were like literally landing. You know what I mean? It was just absolutely mental. Anyway, um, to the right of me, about 50 metres, was a heap of Kurdish women. Anyway, ISIS are coming in. And um, I'll not go too much into that one. But anyway, what happened was they, uh, the Kurdish woman set off one of the ISIS fighters, suicide belts, about 40 metres. It's like sudden anyway next thing these women started singing singing and all you heard in the middle of this firefight and literally even i was like for a second like you couldn't make this shit up you know what i mean and this this they set off this guy and isis was i'm telling you they were right on us you know what i mean and the biggest fear for us is suicide belts because the suicide belt is to blow that blow that hole and create that confusion. A bit like at Britskrieg, bang, then they all funnel through. But anyway, I'm getting off track again, sorry. For me, that sums up Kurdish women. Yeah. That sums them up. They are singing and fighting. And the biggest fear of ISIS is to be killed by a woman, by the way. That is the biggest fear because they don't go to the 72 you know what i mean and um but for me that sums up kurdish women fighters during that that but i've got a friend uh, she was killed uh while we were assaulting another place and um but that night for me sums up all all kurdish women whether it's peshmerga whether it's ypg that for me sums up Kurdish women. Are they, they are, are they all good then, Alan, or or yes. are some of them shit? I can only go by my own personal experience. I didn't come across any that were shit. I'd actually trust trust them women more than people I've served with. Yeah. You know that might sound, but I'm talking about this is battlefield. You know what I mean? And these women had. Th they're true, true, true warriors. And you know, you've got to remember these women, they're they're not they're fighting ISIS 
not only bit for their country, but for their rights, they don't want to suddenly become, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Slave, but they're also fighting. And this is a big, big thing with the Kurds. A lot of people forget this. You speak to any 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 anybody on the front lines across there, why are you fighting? You've got to remember this. A lot of these guys didn't get paid for six, seven months as well. That was another thing. And they didn't see it as only a fight for Kurdistan and for the Kurds. And they saw it as a fight for everybody. But they truly saw it as a fight for the world because the caliphate would have to be stopped there. If it was not stopped there, it would be here next. Mm -hmm. And it would only have encouraged further recruitment, further. That had to be stopped there. So they saw themselves and the women, all of them, they saw themselves as the front line for humanity, for the world. They truly, truly believed that. It wasn't only a fight for them and their country, but for the world. Yeah. I can tell you it was. And these women played a massive, massive part in that. And the world must never forget the sacrifice that that the not only the Peshmerga, but the SDF have made for us all because they they have paid a high, high price, Chris. Truly a high price. Truly. Yes, I bet. You know, I've lost some good friends. Um, and I'll never forget S- someone, a ISIS IED. <laughs> you know, someone, that was it. We'd taken it. We'd, that was it, finished. And somebody set off an IED and it killed him. And I'll never forget, we were sitting talking and he says, you know, someone, Alan, if I get killed, then... My family, they they will forever, you know, I'll be seen as a hero to my family. But more importantly, I believed in what I was, I was fighting for and f- fighting against. And little, I was very close to Simone actually because um, I kind of took him under my wing in a way. But he spoke some English. So that's why we got close as well. And the Kurds have paid a high price Mm -hmm. in this fight against ISIS. And the airstrikes and everything, I've heard all the arguments and I've seen parties within the UK vote against them airstrikes. That's another story, but them airstrikes played a major role in supporting those on the ground that were fighting against ISIS. The only thing fear, well, apart from the women, of course, but ISIS did, and, you know, they they feared the drone strikes, the airstrikes, big time. If it wasn't for them, the caliphate would still be there. You know, the, the, the Kurds on the ground and also the airstrike support. And I have big arguments about the airstrikes because you've got the likes of the SNP and Labour that voted against them. Well, I'll tell you what they say kills innocent people and all the rest of this. I've seen these. Can we just clarify? I wasn't going to go there simply because my my knowledge is is hazy. Are we we talking about the airstrikes on Syria that that Donald Trump authorised? No, (laughs) this is right. 
it was airstrikes on ISIS. It wasn't on Iraq. It wasn't on Syria. It was on ISIS. Yeah. And that's the difference. I mean, too many people, I've seen this arguments, airstrikes on, on Syria, airstrikes on Iraq. No, it was on ISIS in Iraq or in Syria. I could, every single person on the ground, and I'll introduce you to women and children sex slaves who were been held by ISIS underneath, the, on the receiving end of these airstrikes, these drone strikes. And you know something? Not one person was against them airstrikes on the ground. I, I've said many a time to Yazidi women and children and others, what if you were killed by one of them airstrikes? What if your family was killed by one of them airstrikes? And you know what the reply is? The reply is, it would have been better to have been killed by an airstrike than leave ISIS to continue what they were doing to us. Evil is not beaten by appeasement, basically. There's um ex-SAS guy that used that, and I've, I've always stuck that in the head. Uh, Robin, um, he, he, I'll never forget that saying, and it's very true. Evil is not beaten by, uh, by appeasement. And I've never met anybody that was against them airstrikes. Nobody. Yeah. I, I've had ISIS say it to me in interviews that the difference that they 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 made they they honestly I'm, you know, I'm confused alan because from the media over here and i'm not sure even if we're talking about the same airstrikes it, it was that it was against the president of syria's uh, uh, rule that that's how it came across and that's why i think it caused um controversy the, it, it, I, I i apologies if i've got this no wrong. no 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 the, no 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 i understand because it has been a bit confusing but i'm not been funny you've had a lot of people like sir corbyn and the snp and what have you that were saying started screaming in the media no airstrikes on syria it wasn't air it was airstrikes on isis in syria there's a difference now i think the coalition did an airstrike on uh, an, uh, an Assad base, um, air base, in retaliation, uh, in that... retaliation for a chemical attack to say, uh, yes. do not do the chemical attacks. And on the chemicals, um, I don't know if Dave mentioned um, a chemical attack we had on us. No, but can we just clarify that? Uh, yes, what what you've just described is what the attack that I'm referring to that we saw in the media over here. It was, yeah, it was in retaliation for a chemical attack. And it was basically, I think they hit the base that the attack was launched from. And it was basically a, a, a signal to Assad that you can't, to stop. You do another chemical attack, we'll hit you again, we'll hit you harder. But it wasn't specific to taking out Assad and all the rest of this. If the coalition wanted to do that, they could have done it long ago. Yeah, Assad's won that war. <laughs> it was a strange one-off um, strike. I think the controversy was. I don't think. Well, there certainly was an element of people that didn't believe that that he had used chemical weapons. That it was just. Yeah. It it had been fact. It it was a false flag, basically. I've spoken to people on the ground, and even people that can't stand. Um, 
that you know what I mean it it was it was um it's quite common across there to be dropping like chlorine bombs or whatever it's uh we had an ISIS attack and um in fact Dave actually called it into the Americans and uh, it was a mortar attack and it was a mixture of chlorine and mustard that they used and even 24 hours later you walked near that shell and oh yeah um again david can confirm that um yeah um yeah isis did use chemicals but they weren't using anthrax and things like that but they did use uh, a mixer mix of old mustard and chlorine um that went on luckily they didn't i don't think they had the experience to be able to do it enough there's still a lot but there definitely was chemicals i've experienced it firsthand you know i've got the photos i've got and as i say david was there and ended up calling it into american contacts but, so. but you're saying this was isis though that was isis but what yeah. i'm saying is that's the chemicals are across there you know when assad's dropping like say a chlorine bomb a barrel bomb you know it's it's common they have have it across there and from what i've heard from people that you know are both sides of the border pro and anti mm. he has used it let me because i meet people that are pro assad when i'm in syria when i'm in the likes of kamishlo you know, you've got a lot of pro-Assad. You're driving through parts of it. You've got Assad forces to the left and right of you. It's it's crazy. And then you've got the Kurds that control another part of the city, Christians that control another part. Yeah, I've actually, I actually stood there one night uh, at a shop, and the shop order comes out with a coffee, which is kind of standard across there. Hey, you want coffee, you know? And like... And next thing, Assad policeman walks in the bloody shop. <laughs> Ended up chatting and that. It's a strange setup. Some places across there, like it's. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a, a a a sick version of a Monty Python film. It it it, it kind of, it actually you're right on that. Um, I don't think I sent you the video because you're going through right. You got you got Assad's father and all the flag and all the rest. Of this you got Assad checkpoint. 10 meters to your right, you got another one 20 meters to the left. And you have to keep going straight on because if you, if me as a Westerner goes into that area, I'm in Damascus for three or four months because they'll arrest you as a journalist, but they'll release you eventually. But it's a lot of obviously it's going to be a pain in the butt. But you have to know where you're going and all this. Like it's it's a strange setup. But the Kurds have never really attacked. You've got Kurd, you've got Russian. Um, this is the funny thing about in Syria just now, in the Kurdish area, you've got Russian troops, you've got American troops, you've got Assad's troops, you've got, it's, it's a crazy mix across there, like, yeah. but the main thing is, it's, yeah, it's like Monty Python at times, like, honestly, mate, yeah, you're right, that's a good, good one, that actually, I'll have to remember that, bro. Alan, I'm going to um, bring our chat to, to a close now, so we can keep it to a nice um, two-hour slot. Uh, hopefully encourage more people to watch it is what I'm trying to watch our podcast is what I'm trying to say but I want to finish on um, the very real possibility that you get overrun when you're when you're there with your weapon on the front line yeah 
I I got the impression, I think, from Emile's documentary and, and the other footage I've seen that it's obviously your biggest fear is getting overrun. Yeah. And I think a while back we're talking. My memory doesn't serve me well, as you can probably guess, but we're talking maybe about four years. I think it was about 2016, yeah. Was it photos appeared on Facebook of a young British lad? Um, yeah. He, I think he'd been in some of the documentaries and and he was a sort of, you know, chirpy, squatty sort of thing. And the next thing you know, you're seeing photos of him yeah. no longer with us. Um, all, all, quite, all quite serious. I mean, the whole thing's bloody serious. You, you, um, you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah, your biggest fear was, um, for me, obviously, but everybody. I mean, you're not talking just Westerners here. You're talking about everybody. You know, you've got to remember that ISIS saw me as, if they captured a Westerner, you'd be good propaganda for them. You know, you've got to remember that they were doing the same to the Kurdish prisoners as well, the Kurds of the SDF of the Peshmerga. They were slow, slow you know, if you, even Iraq army, Syrian army, they'd be slaughtering you. But yeah, if they captured you as a Westerner, you'd be good. You'd be orange jumpsuit. You'd be. And I think, I mean, I can only talk for myself on this. I had... Um, a pistol as my backer and I always had a couple of loose reins spare in my pocket because I always said that I would never ever be taken by them I couldn't put my family through that but I couldn't give ISIS that satisfaction of using you for their propaganda either yeah so we I mean I'm only talking for myself but it was uh it, it it wasn't something that you thought about. You know, ISIS attack, the last thing on your mind was that because you knew you were going to go out no matter what. You know, they weren't getting past us. That was the bottom line. So you were going to fight to the end. But that added bonus for the likes of a Westerner. I saw rumours, and I, I think, again, this was created by Westerners on Facebook, about 100 grand bounties and all the rest of this. Well, funnily enough... Um, I've obviously got good contacts within intelligence within the, you know, I, you know, and news to me, them bounties and what have you, but it wasn't about bounties and it was about, for me personally, it was never putting your family, letting your family see you on the, on the TV. It was about not letting Dash use you for their propaganda so I, I wasn't, if that was the case for me, I mean, luckily I was, you know, I, w I wasn't put in that position to be able to, but I wouldn't have been taken by them, no. Yeah. And I can think it all Westerners would probably much along the same lines as that. But I can only speak for myself. But that guy, I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, brave guy and total respect to him and his family and to be honest any western that died fighting across their 100% respect um to them to their families and um they they gave up their all they're the ones that are the heroes 
The heroes are the ones that from the from the Peshmerga, from the SDF to Western volunteers, the ones that died fighting, lost limbs, they're the heroes. The rest of us were just nothing. You know, we I had the honor to walk alongside some true heroes. True heroes. On that point, Alan, I'm gonna say thank you so much for telling us your story. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for um, asking us as well, yeah. Chris. Well, no, we'll let, we'll let, we're going to pick this up again at a later date. You, you're going to come and give us an update. Maybe we'll even do a live show together and take some take some questions from, from our friends at home. Can I but, quickly say about the documentary, if you don't mind? Yeah, you, you plug whatever you need to. Right. All I'll say is I've got one of the top production companies. We're in some serious, serious talks at the minute. If you saw BBC, uh, I, I am going to say the programme because it's public. BBC Panorama, Stacey meets Isis Brides. She got nothing. Yeah. That's all I'll say. I've got, but I'm not in that media clique. You know yourself, Chris, if you're not in that clique. And it's kind of funny because I'm sitting in Camerslow at night going in into where all these people are trying to get and I'm listening to them at night bitching that they can't get this interview, they can't get this. And they're all looking down at me because I'm not this press guy that's been to uni. I've not got the degrees. I've not done the degrees on the documentaries. And, you know, yeah, Channel 4 documentary teams who couldn't get, you know what I mean? And I'm just, again, it was because I've got belief in what I'm doing. Because for me, the documentary is now the weapon against ISIS as well. It's, you know... The, the fighting side was a weapon, but now, for me, the documentary... Do you have I, any social media pages set up yet, or is that is that all to come? I'm not... Yeah, I've got my Facebook, but I really don't bother too much with that. Uh, as you see, I, I do the odd um, people, interview... People can I get do, hold of you via LinkedIn, though, right? Yeah, uh, by LinkedIn, by... Yeah. You know what I mean? But to be honest, I'm not that too big on... Um, I'm not too big on the, the, the social media these days is um, I kind of keep it all over the time or worry about it. <laughs> I was only thinking if anybody wants to get involved in your product uh, project, you know, financing that, that, that sort of thing that, that, that at least there's a point of contact. Can I mention the financing actually? Um, I got no commission up front from any channel. Um, what I can say is um, there's a, I had some support from people, but when you're looking at $800 a day just for the fixer and you're doing three, four, five, six weeks at a time, <laughs> mm -hmm. I've had some fantastic support from some supporters. Um, and financially, it's um, one in particular, I'll not mention names, but one in particular. Um, as financed, I'm talking, you know it's yourself how expensive this can be to do what you're doing, even sitting there. It's it's not, it's, you know what I mean? It's so on the, the, I don't need anything on that at the minute, um, but thank you um, for, for mentioning that. But I do have backers on that. And as I say, we are, we're, let's just say, um, you're going to be seeing something that you've never seen before. And of course, um, rescued. I have to say this, sorry, mention this. 
two days ago, the Yazidi that I rescued, who was held for five years by ISIS, she got engaged to her man. He waited all these years for her. Mm-hmm. And he now does EOD, clearing ISIS mines for a living. So he's a brave guy, but he waited all these years for her. And I cried during part of this journey with her when we were taking her back to her family. And um, all of us cried, actually. That You know what I mean? It's, uh, for me, that day made this whole... Forget everything else. That, that made every, this whole journey worthwhile. And now she's got engaged and she wins. She's a victim that wins. Dash, they can sit in rotten graves. They can sit in prisons. But she gives hope that you can, that the victims in the end, the, the, you know, the ones that are alive and now back with their families, they've won. ISIS lose. And ISIS will never win. Never. Alan, thank you very much to everybody at home. I hope you, uh, you've you enjoyed this chat as much as I have. There might be a full-length version on my brand new tube or my bit shoot because I've got a feeling there's certain segments we've had to cut out uh, to go on YouTube. So massive thank you for watching. Big love to you all. If you could like and subscribe, you're going to get more uh, more chats like this. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. You're welcome, mate. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.